Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS and to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. It's Monday, February 20th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's jump right in to reading articles from the front page today. This first one, titled, Barber Caters to Walk-Ins. Bellevue Couple Hopes to Fill Niche in Town's Hairstyling Options. Story was filed by Kaylee Reese. A Bellevue couple recently opened a barbershop in the community, emphasizing walk-in opportunities. Victoria and Libby Small opened their barbershop, Fade Babe, at 132 North Riverview Street, in the space that previously housed the hometown honeys and happy stems. Quote, Years ago, there was a barbershop here, and I had a very nostalgic feel for it, said Victoria, a Bellevue native. Quote, my dad took me to the barbershop when I was younger to get his hair cut. I had been doing hair in Iowa City, and I saw how many hair salons we had in town, but none of them were walk-in based. I felt that's what this town needed, unquote. Victoria has been doing hair for six years, though this is her first time owning a shop. She and her wife moved to Bellevue to run the business at Libby's encouragement, as Libby enjoyed the small-town feel. While the barbershop takes appointments for hair coloring and extensions, Victoria said she wanted to make haircuts and face waxing walk-in based. Quote, for second-shift people, especially farmers and laborers, they don't have a planned-out schedule of how long they are going to be out in the field, she said. I wanted to provide them an opportunity to be out in the field and be able to come in and get their hair done nicely when they can. Victoria is the only stylist working in the barbershop now, but she has space to add five people. Libby, who is a full-time EMT in Makokoda and a volunteer EMT and firefighter in Bellevue, helps with marketing and managing the front desk when she has time. Quote, it's been going really well, Victoria said of the business. I'm excited for warmer weather and for more people to come in and see who we are and what we do, unquote. Fade Babe is open from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, as well as 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturday. The business can be reached at area code 319-536-2826. The shop can be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadebabe and on Instagram at fade underscore babe underscore barbershop. Next, we have another installment from the Telegraph Herald's Love That Lasts, a continuing series highlighting the tri-state area couples married 50 years or more. And this, this one's titled Dubuque Couple Marches in Sync and filed by Michelle London. 15-year-old Dick Feller was a drummer in Dubuque's Legionnaire's Drum and Bugle Corps when he spotted 14-year-old Sharon Hoffman, who was a member of the Color Guard. She, however, didn't immediately notice him. Quote, actually, I kind of liked his twin brother, Dan, first, said Sharon Feller, 70, of Dubuque. But that didn't last very long. Their first date was a homecoming dance when they were sophomores at Wallert High School. Dick, also 70, was marching in the band prior to the dance, while Sharon opted to skip it so she could get ready for that all-important first date. Quote, I was late, Dick said. 
I had to go home and change and then pick up two other couples who were coming with us. And then I got stopped for speeding. But Sharon had no doubt Dick eventually would arrive. Quote, I knew he would be there, she said. Sharon said it was Dick's smile that first drew her attention. Quote, that smile can light up a room, she said. Dick loved Sharon's bubbly personality and the easy way she could talk to just about anybody. Quote, I was more of an introvert, he said. She was so extroverted. We just fit together really well. Dick proposed marriage just after he completed his junior year at Loras College, where he was majoring in medical technology. Sharon was working as a pharmacy technician at Finley Hospital. Quote, I had a one-year internship coming up, and I knew if we didn't get married before that, I wouldn't see her for a year, Dick said. Quote, if we got married, at least we could see each other at night, unquote. Dick bought the rings without telling Sharon and hid them behind a seat in his 72 Volkswagen Beetle. A few days later, he quickly had to retrieve them when his car had to be towed for repairs. Quote, I stuck them in a hat, he said. When I was going to propose, I had to go and get it. I'm sure she wondered why I needed that goofy hat. The couple married at Sacred Heart Catholic Church on September 8, 1973, and then drove Dick's Beetle on a honeymoon to Colorado, where they visited the Coors Brewery in Golden. Quote, Sharon was 20, and I was 21, Dick said. She wasn't even old enough to drink, but it was a fun trip, unquote. Both Dubuque natives, the couple set up their home in their hometown, where they raised four children. Bob, Julie, Stan, Jenny Stankiewicz, and Jolly Kilbert. They also have seven grandchildren. Dick worked at Finley as a medical technologist for 13 years, then returned to school at Clark College and got a degree in computer science. He began working at the University of Dubuque, where he retired as the Director of Information Services after 30 years. Sharon stayed at home with the children until they were a bit older, then began working as an associate in some of Dubuque's Catholic schools. Quote, I worked at Nativity, St. Anthony's, and Holy Ghost for probably over 20 years, she said. I loved working with the kindergartners and first graders. I loved all the kids, but the younger ones just stole my heart, unquote. Dick and Sharon enjoyed taking camping vacations with their children and graduated from a tent-to-pop-up camper after a few years, which allowed them to travel longer distances to places such as Colorado and Canada. Their daughter, Julie, remembers those trips fondly and also recalls how much her parents enjoyed them. Quote, even after we were kids, we were all gone. They still went camping, she said. Julie said her parents always demonstrated their love for each other, which she didn't always appreciate. Quote, whenever my dad came home from work, the first thing my mom would do was give him a kiss. Every single day, she said. When I was younger, it grossed me out. But now I see the example they set, and it's what I wanted to do, unquote. As longtime members of Church of the Nativity, Dick and Sharon always have been involved with both church and school activities. Quote, I'm the president of our St. Vincent de Paul Conference at Nativity, Dick said. Through the years, we were involved with the Booster Club and all of the organizations. If it was going on at Nativity, we were part of it. 
especially when the kids were in school, unquote. Julie said her parents enjoy spending time with their family, especially their grandchildren. Quote, my son used to go to their house after school, she said. He's in high school now, so not as much. But my 23-year-old daughter loves to go to their house. I think she visits them more than she visits us, unquote. But that's okay with Julie, who appreciates her parents' deep love of those around them. Quote, the sacrifices they made to raise their family are amazing, she said. I only remember having a babysitter maybe one or two times. They were dedicated to their family. There's a really good example of what a good marriage should be. The fellers do enjoy an occasional meal out with friends, and Julie said they like browsing local thrift stores. At home, their Yorkie, Angel, keeps them entertained. Dick and Sharon will celebrate their golden anniversary at the end of the summer with a mass at Nativity and perhaps a brunch with all of their children and grandchildren, some of whom live in Ohio and Minnesota. Quote, we didn't want a big party, Sharon said. It will just be nice to have them all here. The couple agree that their strong faith, which was passed down to them from their parents, has played a major role in their long marriage. Quote, I think the main thing is we love the Lord, Dick said. We go to church together. We go every day through the week when we can. Quote, love and respect, that's the main thing, Sharon added. We spat here and there, but that's normal. Sharon celebrated her 70th birthday in January, almost exactly nine months after Dick turned 70 last spring. Quote, I like to say that when I was born, I put in my order, Dick said, and nine months later, Sharon was born, unquote. Next, we have a story titled, Market Forces Impact Home Sales. This filed by Kaylee Reese. Despite high home prices and interest rates in the past year, area real estate agents see positive signs for buyers looking for a new home in the months ahead. Recent data from the area real estate agents show that local home sales were down last year compared to 2021. However, the average sale price increased year over year. Jeff Heffel, managing broker for Rural and Rural Realtors in Dubuque and president of the East Central Iowa Association of Realtors, said 1,578 homes were sold in Dubuque and the surrounding area last year. In 2021, 1,743 homes were sold in the area compared to 1,624 homes sold in 2020. However, Heffel noted that the 2020 total was back to more normal pre-pandemic levels when the number of homes sold in the area typically fell between the upper 1300s and low 1500s. 2020 and 21 were just two of the best years ever, he said. The big thing those years were the interest rates going down to keep the economy going while everything shut down. Eventually, inflation reared its head. The rate that the Federal Reserve raises doesn't directly affect the mortgage rates, but they do indirectly affect them, unquote. FL said increased interest rates on loans last year dramatically decreased buying power on homes, leading to an overall slowdown in sales. Quote, inventory is so low, he said. There are so few existing homes that the prices really haven't dropped too much. The average home price last year in Dubuque area was 
$253,872, and homes sold in an average of 23 days. In 2021, home prices averaged 231472 with homes selling in 29 days. In Grant County, Wisconsin, the average price of homes sold last year was around 168000 compared to 150000 the year prior, according to Rennie Wrinkler, owner of Platteville Realty. There were 539 homes sold in the county last year, compared to 599 homes in 2021. In 2022, we saw interest rates rise, of course, which did price some buyers out of the market, she said. It also created situations where people considering selling were hesitant. They didn't want to lose the rate they were at on their current home, unquote. Northwest Illinois Alliance of Realtors recently released housing market data from last year in Joe Davies, Carroll, and Stevenson counties. That area saw the average home price increase to a new high of 202160 up more than 22000 from 2021. Sales still dropped, however, from 1,096 residents sold last year compared to 1,392 in 2021. Quote, inventory has been one of the number one drivers in this increase in prices due to lack of inventory and dwindling inventory, not only year over year, but it seems like month to month, said Connor Brown, the CEO of Northwest Alliance of Realtors. Inventory might still play a factor in home buying this year, Brown said, as material costs to build new homes still remains high. However, he said, he expects interest rates to moderate for buyers, particularly in the second half of the year. Quote, we're already seeing declines of those high mortgage rates, he said. Those fluctuations happen in any market. We just saw mortgage rates rise in a short time frame, and it took buyers a moment to adjust to it. It may not return to 3%, but it will hang around 5 to 5.5%. Winkler said she expects homes to sell fairly quickly this year, and buyers still might search for a new residence despite whatever the interest rate might be. Quote, we will still see buyers looking because it's just the way it is, she said. A 6% interest rate is nothing compared to what we saw in the 70s and 80s. We've just been spoiled with what we've seen in the last two years, unquote. Heffel said he already has seen prices on homes begin to drop. Quote, anybody that's looking to buy, I would say it's probably less stressful time to buy now than it has been in the last two or three years, he said. There's not going to be crazy good deals out there, but you will be able to get homes for asking price or under asking price, unquote. Now, let's turn the page and read the news in brief column. Woman gets probation after pleading guilty to assaulting father of her child. A woman has been sentenced to two years of probation for assaulting a man in Dubuque, during which she was accused of threatening him with a knife. Romica E. E. Wade, 29, of Chicago, recently was given a deferred judgment in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to a charge of assault. With a deferred judgment, if probation and payment obligations are successfully completed, 
the record of the case is expunged. Wade initially was charged with domestic assault, with display or use of a weapon, but pleaded guilty to the lesser included charge. As part of her sentence, Wade also must pay a $105 fine, according to the sentencing order from the Iowa District Associate Judge Mark Holstunger. Court documents state that Wade assaulted the father of her child on August 2nd. The man told police he was walking in the 200 block of Valley Street when Wade drove alongside him, exited her vehicle, and opened a folding knife while threatening him. The man told police that Wade chased him while holding the knife, and he ran toward his residence, documents state. Wade returned to her vehicle, put it in reverse, and accelerated toward the man. The man believed Wade was attempting to run him over, documents state. Next, schedule for Dyersville's St. Patrick's Day race festivities are announced. Dyersville, Iowa. A series of race events will take place in Dyersville as part of the community's St. Patrick's Day festivities on March 11th. The Gaelic Gallop 8K and 2-mile Fun Run Walk will begin with check-in at 8.15 a.m. at St. Francis Xavier Elementary at 203 2nd Street Southwest, according to a press release. The event includes a leprechaun leap and about 50-yard dash for ages 6 and younger, the 2-mile run walk for all ages, and an 8-kilometer race for all ages. Online registration is available through March 7th at TotalFitnessDyersville.com. Same-day registration will also be available from 8.15 to 9.30 a.m. Also on March 11th, the annual St. Patrick's Day Parade downtown will be held in Dyersville starting at 1.30 p.m. And now on the police blotter, the Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Departments reported Albert M. Hale, 53, of Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, was arrested at 2.33 a.m. Sunday in the 300 block of Bell Street on a charge of third-degree theft. And Michael L. Wiley, 44, of 2741 Jackson Street, was arrested at 1.31 p.m. Saturday at his residence on a charge of domestic assault with strangulation. Next, we have a story about the Platteville City Council, and the title is Platteville Council Moles Cost Options to Comply with State Stormwater Standards. This filed by Grace Nyland, and she notes that the city is considering plans to partner with local school district. Dateline, Platteville, Wisconsin. Budgetary concerns might impact an upcoming opportunity for the city of Platteville officials to come into compliance with state stormwater regulations, officials learned last week. Common Council members discussed a chance to construct a $600,000 stormwater pond that would bring the city into compliance, but the price tag had members worrying about what it could mean for other city projects. Quote, the Common Council will have to weigh the advantages of meeting the Department of Natural Resources requirements and weigh it against the many other items the city needs to fund, Interim City Manager Nicola Maurer said. Wisconsin cities with over 10,000 people must meet certain requirements 
related to their stormwater management, said Platteville Public Works Director Howard Crowfoot. One requirement is to reduce total suspended solids, fine particles of sediment that can cause environmental issues if allowed to build up in waterways by 20% from the uncontrolled condition. Platteville currently has reduced its total suspended solids by about 19%, and a stormwater pond would lower them further. The city has worked with Delta Three Engineering on a plan for stormwater pond at the corner of Madison and Water Streets near Platteville High School to bring the city into compliance. Platteville School District has agreed potentially to work with the city to share some of the costs, as the district already needs to construct a smaller bioretention basin as part of capital improvements funded by the recently approved $36 million school bond issue. District officials hope to construct the basin this summer to fit their construction timeline. They also have agreed to combine the projects and front the money for the larger pond needed by the city. In return, district officials have asked the city to return its approximately $524,000 share out of the 2024 budget. That amount had council members hesitating. The cost would amount to about 76% of estimated capital improvement spending next year, meaning the city would have to majorly reduce planned improvements across other city departments. The city could divert some of the money borrowed for street improvements to the pond, but that likely would cause some projects to be deferred, such as those planned on Grace and Snowden Streets. Quote, my biggest concern is the timing and the funding, Council Member Kathy Kopp said. We went through a very intense budget process last fall, and even what we came up with for 2024 isn't anywhere near what we want it to be. So at this point, to make significant changes is really going to be challenging, unquote. Asked if the city could wait to put it in the pond, Crowfoot said the city could put it in later, but it would lose out on $75,000 in savings from working with the district. Crowfoot said he believes the state likely then would work with the city to establish a plan and timeline to meet the 20% reduction goal. But the DNR does have the authority to levy judicial and financial penalties if the city doesn't comply. The council will have to vote on the matter at its February 28th meeting as the school board district needs an answer by March 1st. For our next article, TV grillologists share cooking tips with devoted followers at the Dubuque Home Show. This story was filed by Eric Hogstrom. Among the hundreds of people who visited a weekend home show in Dubuque were the devoted followers of a pair of self-styled grillologists. Mark Mad Dog Mathewson and Gary Merrill, stars of the television series Mad Dog and Merrill Midwest Grillin', gave multiple demonstrations per day during the Greater Dubuque Home and Builders Show, a three-day event that concluded Sunday at Grand River Center in Dubuque. The locally organized event featured about 80 exhibitors of home improvement services and products and drew about 1,800 people during the course of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. According to organizer Julie Kinsella, 
Executive Director of Dubuque Home Builders and Associates. Among the show visitors were people like Dennis and Linda Hook of Morrison, Illinois, who came to the show specifically for grilling tips. Quote, we drove an hour and a half to see these guys, Linda Hook said, of the Mad Dog and Merrill pair. The Hooks are avid viewers of the grilling show, which is broadcast in 110 television markets in 35 states. Quote, watching the show is a blast, said Linda Hook, who noted that the Dubuque event marked the first time she and Dennis had seen the grilling television personalities in person. Matthewson said he and Merrill have been providing grilling tips for more than 40 years. He likened the current state of grilling to a golden age of barbecues. Quote, people were entertaining more and more at home, and there are so many types of grills on the market, Matthewson said. We've seen the evolution of grill industries with gas grills, pellet grills, and Kamado grills. An increase in grilling types coincides with increased opportunities to become creative with grilling. Quote, we live by the motto, that there's nothing you can't cook on a grill, Merrill said. The pair presented a variety of grilling tips during their demonstration at the home show. Quote, you see them and they give you ideas, Jerry Loloff said. He and his wife, Janet Loloff, drove to the Dubuque show from their home in Independence, Iowa, to see the demonstration. Quote, when they talk, it's like they're sitting with their friends sharing tips, Janet Loloff said. They are so easy to talk to. Many of the tips concerned countering what the television pair see as the top mistake of home grillers. People have a tendency to overcook, Matthewson said. Overcooking can dry meats, particularly with the current trend toward using lean cuts, which can lose moisture more easily. Quote, if you put a lean cut of meat on the grill dry, it's coming off the grill dry, Matthewson said. Instead, once that lean cut of meat is on the grill, give it a little tender loving care. Sear a large cut of meat where there is heat, then move it to a side of the grill where there is no heat and slowly cook it like it's a little roast. He explained how people can use water bottles filled with concoctions of juices and broth to apply to meat while it's cooking. Quote, then the meats brown up nice and misting seals in the natural juices and flavors, he said. Next, we have the People Etc. column. Ant-Man leads box office at $104 million opening. Dateline, New York. Phase 5 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe might have gotten off to a rocky start, but Ant-Man is bigger than ever at the box office. Quote, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, opened with $104 million in domestic ticket sales, according to studio estimates Sunday, easily surpassing the box office debuts of the previous two Ant-Man films. The Walt Disney Company's Quantumania added another $121.3 million overseas to give the pint-sized hero a $225 million global launch. In its 10th weekend of release, James Cameron's Avatar, The Way of the Water, remained in second place with a $6.4 million box office. Landing in third was Universal's Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, with $5.3 million over the weekend. All quiet on the Western Front, 
tops British awards. Dateline London. Anti-war German drama, All Quiet on the Western Front, won seven prizes, including Best Picture, at the British Academy Film Awards. Irish tragic comedy, The Banshees of Inishirin, took four trophies, including Best British Film, while rock biopic Elvis also won four on Sunday night in London. Austin Butler took the Best Actor Trophy for Elvis, and the Best Actress Prize went to Kate Blanchett for orchestral drama Tar. All Quiet filmmaker Edward Berger was named Best Director. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Monday, February 20th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Service for the Blind. Now, since we're reading on Monday, typically the paper does not have obituaries included, so we'll turn now to the opinion section. This editorial comes to us from the Storm Lake Times pilot and was written by Alan Gubert, and he titled it, Didn't Everyone Fall Plow in the Mild Warm February? Winter's icy winds, stinging snow, and below zero temperatures finally found our slice of the upper Midwest late last month, unlike northern winters of the past. However, this Arctic blast was a quick slap of shattering cold, followed by a warm 40-degree hug of sunshine to melt its accompanying snow and icy heart. A fast, almost 50-degree turnaround in temperature isn't anything new to this aging southern Illinois farm boy. Mild winters and sultry summers defined the bottom third of the prairie state during my youth. In fact, I never knew farmland froze solid during the Illinois winter until I migrated 200 miles north to the Big U. It was a revelation. What? No one in central Illinois fall plowed in February? We did almost every old, or was it new, crop year. Indeed, my great-uncle Honey, an experienced mangler of semi-mounted plows, no matter the season, never waited for any spring thaw to finish our fall plowing. If there were dirt to turn, Honey, in his 1850 Oliver, one swaddled in layers of denim, the other in heat hauser canvas, throttled up and hit the dead furrow. My father was just the opposite. He loved spring, welcomed summer, relished fall, but despised winter. Quote, it's easy to cool off, he said by way of explanation, but it's hard to warm up. His strong opinion was shaped by decades, six hours a day at a time, in an icy concrete block milking parlor. No matter the weather from November through March, that parlor was, as Dad would say, quote, colder than a well digger's foot, unquote. For a dozen or so of those winters, the only heat in the wet, cold parlor came from steaming cows and an open-flamed propane-fueled stove the size of a small suitcase. It warmed the barn cats and an adult's knees perfectly fine, but offered little comfort to any other man or beast. Finally, in a mid-1960s barn remodel, Dad splurged and had a gas furnace installed in the feed room above the parlor. Its blower pumped warm, dry air directly on Dad and into an adjoining milk room. Howard, our longtime herdsman, loved the upgrade. After it was installed, 
forever, glass-half-full Howard spent every spare winter moment when he wasn't milking, feeding, or cleaning up after the Holsteins, looking out the south-facing windows of the now-toasty milk room, puffing on his pipe in warm, happy silence. Our home got a coal-oil furnace a few years before the dairy barn. It was undersized and wheezed air that smelled like burned coal-oil, but raised the overall temperature in our drafty farmhouse to, maybe, the high fifties on sunny winter afternoons. Dad tried to improve its performance by placing a roll of straw bales on the house's perimeter. Since most of the house was built on piers, its only cellar was under the kitchen. Every cold, uninsulated downstairs floor was made even colder by winter air and snow blowing under the house. Enter the straw bale strategy. And so, too, enter every mouse, opossum, raccoon, hibernating turtle, salamander, toad, and any other creature that knew how to build a dry, warm winter nest from fine wheat straw hand-delivered by some nice man blowing his nose in a red handkerchief. Dad's straw line of defense did, however, keep the water lines to our home's only bathroom from freezing whenever the temperature dropped below 25 degrees. Of course, you had to keep the room's propane stove lit and the water running, both hot and cold, please, to ensure the morning delivered you back to the same century you had left the night before. Then, seemingly, as soon as everyone began to tire of cold cows, cold bedrooms, and cold feet, Mother Nature threw southern Illinois a sunny, warm February softball and temperatures would climb to 40, 50, and more times than I can count, even 60 degrees. My father would smile and cautiously expose a bare arm or two. My mother would smile and hang laundry, dozens of cotton gloves and heavy overalls, on her back clotheslines. Howard would smile, light his pipe, and haul manure. And Uncle Honey would take his earmuffs off, fuel up, and plow and plow and plow. Our next opinion piece appeared in the Des Moines Register on Sunday, written by Steve Westerberg, entitled, Critics Use Falsehoods in Bid to Reduce Trust in Public Schools. It's deeply insulting to teachers who are pouring their hearts into their students to know some are purposely tearing them and their profession down. I encourage everyone to pay attention to what is going on at the Iowa Capitol concerning education. Though the private school voucher bill has received the most attention, there are other bills that could further damage public education if they pass into law. Nationwide, there's a well-orchestrated effort to undermine confidence in public schools. The strategy involves widespread sharing of false narratives to sow doubts about the practices taking place in public schools. Here are a few examples of how this strategy is being implemented spreading widely rumors that there are public school students identifying as cats and that those students are being accommodated by schools providing kitty litter in the bathrooms. This ridiculous rumor has no basis in fact, yet continues to circulate across the country, including in Iowa. Also, promoting the belief that schools are teaching critical race theory. Critical race theory is the product of research conducted by college professors years ago that looked at how past discriminatory practices 
such as refusing home loans to members of minority groups and voter restrictions, had a long-term impact on the social, economic, and health of minorities. CRT is not being taught in public K-12 schools. The vast majority of Americans had never heard of CRT until it became a talking point for those who sought to further split the American electorate on the topic of public education, and also denigrating public schools and their teachers by accusing them of having a sinister agenda to indoctrinate students in harmful and un-American ideals. The quoted phrase was used by the former president of the Iowa Senate. Accusations against teachers and librarians that suggest they are purveyors of pornography and should be charged with a crime. And, most recently, Representative Stephen Holt of Denison is floor-managing a bill, House File 132, that would require social studies teachers to have a, quote, comparative discussion of political ideologies. Holt claims he and other lawmakers have heard, quote, a lot of high school and college students singing the praises of socialism. He goes on to say, quote, I believe there are some in our education establishment that seem to be embracing some of these things today. These quotations were in the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. Never mind that there isn't a government teacher in the state who doesn't already instruct on the economic systems, capitalism, socialism, communism, and that such instruction is already part of the state-approved social studies standards. Compare and contrast various economic and labor systems within and across societies. Holt's use of hyperbole to imply schools are promoting un-American ideals is dangerous. Instead of trying to instill fear and anger for political gain, effective politicians pass meaningful legislation to address known problems such as lowering student debt, promoting adequate and affordable child care, ending poverty, cleaning up polluted water, etc. If Holt and his colleagues really believe in this latest Red Scare coming from, quote, a lot of students, they would do well to learn why these students are expressing their concerns about capitalism. Could it be that these young people see their parents working three jobs to make ends meet, while the wealthy seem to control all the levers of the economy? Could it be because their parents lost their jobs during the pandemic and their families suffered financial hardships while the gap between rich and poor continued to grow? Maybe if our elected officials would learn to listen to some who don't blindly follow the party line, the result would be some meaningful legislation that offers help to Iowa and many Iowans, while at the same time promotes understanding that capitalism is the greatest economic system in the world. Why would some politicians and media sources want to weaken the public's confidence in public education? Here's my take on it. There are stark philosophical differences between those attempting to undermine public education and most public educators. Since educators aren't a large component of the current ruling party's voting base, the votes of educators don't really matter. It makes it far easier for those politicians to assert their political and social agenda on public schools when public confidence in schools is already reduced. Public education is a cornerstone of our democracy. Instead of tearing it down, we need to be supporting and uplifting this work and the people doing it. 
I encourage citizens to find out the facts on what and how students are being taught in your schools through conversations with building administrators and classroom teachers and by looking at the district's website rather than relying on social media posts and partisan news outlets and politicians. We need to share the facts and call out those who spread falsehoods. It's deeply insulting to teachers who are pouring their hearts into their students to know some are purposely tearing them and their profession down. The author, Steve Westerberg of Forest City, retired in 2020 after 40 years as a public school teacher, principal, and superintendent. Next we have On the Lighter Side by Argus Hamilton. President's Day celebrates George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, while Americans prepare to choose again between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I don't know whatever happened to quality control in this country. America hasn't completely lost its marbles, but there's definitely a hole in the bag. CNN's Don Lemon asserted that GOP president candidate Nikki Haley was past her prime as a woman at the age of 51 Wednesday. You'd think he lives in Hollywood. Yesterday at the Polo Lounge, the bartender told Leonardo DiCaprio the scotch he was drinking is 25 years old and Leo spit it out. Argus Hamilton is the host comedian at the Comedy Store in Hollywood and entertains groups and organizations around the country. And now back to local news from the Telegraph Herald. Spring construction planned for a new gazebo at Cascades Riverview Park. Story filed by Daniel Charland. Officials hope to complete construction of the replacement project by the end of June just in time for a full slate of scheduled events at the park. Dateline is Cascade, Iowa. The final construction phase of a new, larger gazebo in Cascades Riverview Park will happen this spring. The improvements come almost three years after the old gazebo was discovered to be in poor condition by the city public works staff in 2020. Initially, planning was to wash and paint it, Staff realized the severity of the deterioration of the wooden structure and possible problems in the foundation, which warranted further investigation. The idea of replacing the gazebo with a new one was brought to City Council in March of 2021, followed by a months-long debate and resident feedback regarding the new design. The decisions further were complicated by requirements of the Army Corps of Engineers regarding the gazebo's structural relation to the river. To meet these needs, the new gazebo will be built even with the river wall. The building itself will be almost double the length of its predecessor and a few feet wider. In fall of 2022, the council bid the demolition of the old gazebo and poured the concrete flatwork to have the base set for spring construction. The council also bid the contract for the gazebo structure and electric connection to BNL Manternek Construction for $104,600. Because BNL was not the low bidder, the business agreed to make a donation to bring the final cost to the city to about $96,000. Work will begin in the spring with a deadline of June 30th to avoid conflict with the majority of park events. However, the first two events of the year will have to work around it. There's supposed to be two events in the park during that time, City Administrator Lisa Cotter said. Quote, One is Wing Fest 
and they're considering having it on First Avenue instead so they don't disturb the park, and rockin' on the river on the first Saturday in June, Cotter said. We said they'll have to button up the construction area if they're not done yet for that. The gazebo's main feature will be an open walk-in on the west side facing the park, limestone to match the amphitheater, a gable roof, railing facing the river, and stone walls on the north, south, and west. It will fit three park benches, and the electricity will come from the park amphitheater. Funding for the construction will come from the city parks department. If the expenses exceed the estimated amount, Cotter said sales tax dollars will fill the rest. The city currently is accepting donations for the gazebo, having already collected $12,000 from three donors. Any interested donors can call City Hall. All donors of $1,000 or more will have their names on a recognition wall in the gazebo. Next, we have Lancaster's Chamber Honors Area's Best. This from the Telegraph Herald. Dateline, Lancaster, Wisconsin. Several Lancaster area residents and businesses recently were recognized as the best and brightest of the area. Lancaster Area Chamber of Commerce recognized both community members and business leaders for their dedication and service in the local community at its annual award celebration. The awards and winners are as follows, according to an announcement from the Chamber. Citizen of the Year was Bill Lalwig, was recognized for his dedication and service in the community. Lalwig has worked with the local Boy Scouts troop for 15 years and is also involved in the local American Legion and VFW. Educator of the Year, Melissa Spiral was honored for her tenure in Lancaster Community School District. Spurl teaches fifth grade and was heralded in the announcement as someone who gives 110% in everything she does. New Businesses of the Year, Wretch Family Gardens, was the first business recognized as the New Business of the Year. In addition to selling flowers, the family-owned Flower Farm offers classes in bouquet and wreath building, New Business of the Year. The second New Business of the Year was South Side Wash, a self-service car wash. It opened in September and has two self-service bays and one automatic bay, as well as a station for people to wash their pets. Business Improvement Award, Gata Dance Academy of Performing Arts, was recognized for its sizable capital investment to improve the interior of its existing building and to expand operations. The Academy has served more than 1,500 performers since it opened in 2010. The Lifetime Achievement Award went to Bob Smith, who was recognized for his more than 50 years of community leadership. Smith received the award for his business, volunteering, and community development efforts. Business Leaders of the Year, a mother and daughter duo, Carrie and Kelsey Retelik, own and operate The Meat Shop, a butcher shop and store dedicated to providing local meat options. For Business of the Year, Doolittle's Pub and Eatery was selected for its continued presence and service in the Lancaster community. The announcement noted that the business recently added to its outdoor space, providing something new for patrons to enjoy. And lastly, 
The Outstanding Nonprofit of the Year went to Southwest Opportunity Center, which was honored for its efforts to improve area residents' lives. The nonprofit offers programming for employment assistance, socialization, recreation, and more. Now, in honor of President's Day, we have a quiz for President's Day, Presidential Pets. This by J. Mark Powell. Americans are crazy about animals, and so were most of the folks who called 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue home during the years. How much do you know about their companion animals and other critters? Find out with this short, easy, and fun quiz. First one. Which president found it almost impossible to say no thanks to any animal that was given to him? Your choices are George Washington, Chester Arthur, Calvin Coolidge, or Dwight Eisenhower? And the answer is choice C. Silent Cal assembled such an extensive menagerie that the Washington Post press corps jokingly nicknamed it the White House Zoo. Its star attraction was a pet raccoon named Rebecca. Question number two. Lyndon Johnson was fond of showing off his beagles. What were their names? And your choices are he and she, him and her, they and them, and me and mine. And the answer is option B. Though LBJ loved the pooches and frequently played with them on the White House lawn, he infuriated many dog lovers in 1964 by lifting him by the ears. Question three. Who was the last president to keep a cow in the White House grounds to supply milk? Your choices are Thomas Jefferson, William Howard Taft, Will Woodrow Wilson, or Jimmy Carter? The answer is choice B. Taft's beloved bovine, Pauline Wayne, became a celebrity in her own right, with newspapers even printing interviews with her. Question four. Abraham Lincoln began the practice of unofficially pardoning of Turkey in 1863, but it wasn't for Thanksgiving. The bird was given to the Lincoln family for what occasion? Choices are these. A. To celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation, or B. To mark the end of the Civil War, or C. For Lincoln's birthday, or D. Christmas dinner. The answer is D. On Christmas Eve, Lincoln's 10-year-old son, Tad, tearfully begged his father to spare the turkey he had named Jack. Lincoln wrote a presidential pardon to appease the boy. Question number five. George Washington might have been the father of our country, but he also had a soft spot for animals, including the unusual combination of which dog breeds? And your choices are A. Greyhound and Golden Retriever, B. Dalmatian and Poodle, and C. Rottweiler and Collie, or D, Chihuahua and Spaniel? And the answer is B, Dalmatian and Poodle. Among his many dogs, Washington was especially fond of a Dalmatian named Madame Moose and a Poodle called Pilot. He even took Pilot when he went duck hunting. Question 6. Which of the following was not the name of a famous presidential pet? Here are your choices. A, Fala. B. Socks, C. Millie, or D. Sparky? The answer is D. Fala was FDR's dog, Socks was Clinton's cat, and Millie was George H.W. Bush's dog. Now we turn to the lifestyle page. 
Do you know whom to talk to about your child's routine vaccinations? The story written by Deb Balzer and comes from the Mayo Clinic News Network. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, routine vaccinations for kindergarten in the U.S. fell to 93% during the 2021-22 school year. That's the second year in a row routine vaccination rates have decreased. The vaccines help prevent potentially fatal or severe illnesses, including diphtheria, measles, mumps, rubella, polio, tetanus, whooping cough, known as pertussis, and others. The CDC says there are several reasons for the decline, including the possibility that misinformation about COVID-19 vaccines might have played a role. Quote, it can be confusing if you're a parent and you're looking for information about routine vaccines because there's a lot of great information online, but there's also a lot of misinformation. And sometimes it can be difficult to tell the difference between the two, says Dr. Mepuni Rajapaski, a pediatric infectious disease physician with the Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Rajapaski recommends talking to your child's health care professional for reliable information about routine vaccinations and websites such as mayoclinic.org and the CDC for evidence-based information. Quote, one of the specific vaccines that we've seen lower rates of is the MMR vaccine, or the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, says Raja Paksky. Quote, this is a crucial vaccine, especially the measles component, because we know once we drop below 95% protection in our population, we're at the highest risk of seeing larger measles outbreaks occur, unquote. The CDC says the dip in MMR vaccine leaves about 250,000 kindergarten children in the U.S. potentially vulnerable to measles infection. Quote, that's why it's important, especially when kids are entering school, to ensure they're up to date with all their vaccines. Many kids have fallen behind in the last couple of years with the COVID-19 pandemic, says Raja Paksky. Year to date, there have been two measles cases in the U.S., and in 2012, the CDC reported 121 confirmed measles cases, along with pockets of measles outbreaks, sometimes related to travel abroad. Raja Paksky says pertussis, or whooping cough, is another concern. Quote, we also see whooping cough outbreaks occur, and these are both vaccine-preventable infections, especially amongst the age groups that are most vulnerable to these infections. And, thankfully, while they're not super common, we do, unfortunately, see outbreaks happening in our communities. It's important that we get people up to date on their vaccines for these, said Rajapovsky. What is a measles infection? Measles is a highly contagious viral infection that spreads when an infected person coughs or sneezes. The virus can live up to two hours in an airspace where an infected person coughs or sneezes. The symptoms of measles include cough, runny nose, inflamed eyes, sore throat, fever, and a red, blotchy skin rash. Also called rubella, measles can be severe and even fatal for small children. The CDC recommends all children get two doses of the measles, mumps, and rubella, known as MMR, vaccine. 
started with the first dose at 12 to 15 months old and the second dose at ages 4 to 6. Teens and adults who are unsure whether they are immune should contact their health care team. What is pertussis or whooping cough? Whooping cough, known as pertussis, is a highly contagious respiratory tract infection marked by a cough so severe it chokes away the ability to breathe. Infants and toddlers are at the greatest risk of complications from whooping cough and are more likely to need treatment in the hospital. Complications can be life-threatening for infants younger than six months old. Adult vaccination can protect against a number of diseases as well. Those include seasonal influenza, pneumonia, tetanus, pertussis, shingles, hepatitis A, and hepatitis B. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Monday, February 20th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember that you can access a recording of today's reading of this newspaper and the others around Iowa that we read on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. Music